The Humanalyst podcast sheds light on the humans behind the analytics that improve the things we interact with in our daily lives. We expose the great work that people are doing using information, technology, and the scientific process to make the world a better place. From the perspective of endlessly curious scientists and practitioners who think the data and insights come from the most unlikely sources. We're your hosts. I'm Nicole Decay. And I'm Emily Pelosi. Welcome to the Humanalyst podcast. We've got Ashley Young, who uh, is our resident crisis management person when we have questions to go to about anything that has to do with emergency preparedness. So a little background about Ashley to start. She started in logistics in aerospace supplies when back when we were we sprite young folks straight out of undergrad. Uh, and then she moved into Fulbright Scholarship where she went to Dublin, traveled to Ireland for a while to write a paper that is very apt for right now. It was called An Exploration of the Use of Community Emergency Hubs in Building Community Resilience, a Case Study of Seattle. So really apropos for what's going on right now. Graduated with two master's degrees from that program in 2015 with those were human logistics and emergency management, and then moved on to Starbucks where she did, she was a senior business continuity specialist there. And we'll hear a little bit about what she did or what she does as a job um, and what jobs like hers look like in a minute. Um, And now she's at Oracle as a resilience disaster and recovery crisis manager. So Ashley, thank you for taking time out of a very busy schedule since you are a very high demand person right now. So we appreciate you taking the time to speak to us. Yeah, thank you. I'm I'm really excited to join uh, both of you. So thanks for inviting me. It is a definitely a crazy time uh, in the emergency management, crisis management response world. But it's also kind of what people say in my industry are, is that it's our Super Bowl. Like right now is what people who study what I study and do the work that I do. Uh, that's what we prepare for. And some of us are in, are in better positions uh, and some of us are not. So it's, it's, it's an interesting time for everyone. Yeah, it's interesting that your Super Bowls are kind of um, unplanned, like a, a surprise Super Bowl. So I, I think that that adds an, an element of spice, we'll say. But yeah. um, before we dive into what you're doing today and what the past few weeks or months have looked like for you, bring us along your journey to how you got to where you are today. Yeah, so mine... And every person's journey in emergency management, which is what I'll call like the general kind of industry is emergency management. There's lots of like umbrella types and specific nuances underneath that. But my journey was a little different. I went to a private university for undergrad um, and they really stressed the like giving back to your community aspect, understanding about the impact you have on the world, which to some people is like, "Eh, who cares, you know? I got really jazzed about that. I like giving back and I I like participating in my community. And through kind of various programs on campus, I met folks who were also interested in similar things. And at the same time, I was studying supply chain management, logistics, um, international business, and just really wanting to take what I was studying kind of with a global lens. But I also had like this really weird feeling of like, I need to do more. I want to be more like the humanitarian that I like am interested in being. But, you know, we graduated at the height of the 2008 
recession. There were no jobs available. And so like life kind of changed. I had some friends who went to Haiti through kind of like a volunteer program and they were there during the earthquake in 2010. So there's a Haiti earthquake in January, 2010. And for some reason, like I knew one of the girl's boyfriends. I also had connections through the university with like medical evac programs. And I just happened to be someone that became a focal point between those people in Haiti and how we could get information about them, how we could get them out. And also like all my other resources that I was starting to tap that I had built um, in undergrad. Unfortunately, one of the women passed away um, because of the earthquake. And then the other one uh, was very thankfully spared and was able to come back home. But she definitely went through the humanitarian process of um, having a medical evac. She went to Guantanamo Bay, like she was evacuated there and then through Florida and then came home to Washington. Um, So it was, it was an interesting time. You know, everyone's kind of still out of jobs. This happens to someone, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to get my foot in the door in like logistics and supply chain management. But I had like this nagging feeling that I really, I really liked being able to provide value to that situation for, with people I knew and, and just understanding more of what like humanitarian logistics was. Um, so I kind of started figuring out that I could combine my love of supply chain management with what I wanted to do in a humanitarian space. And thankfully, thanks to Twitter, <laughs> I read an article from the Red Cross that like really well-defined humanitarian logistics and that I could combine those two things together. So I was I was working in supply chain for the aerospace company and for a medical device company when I just like was bored and really not interested in continuing down that path and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I had always heard of like postgraduate grant opportunities. And I thought, wow, I have a lot of student debt. There's no way I'm paying for a master's degree. How can I get this paid for? And that's when, you know, I, I knew what Fulbright was, but I didn't really even think it was a possibility for me. It's so competitive that I was kind of scared to actually apply to be a Fulbright recipient. But at the same time, um, this was in 2013, I really wanted to change. So I started looking at programs globally um, because with Fulbright, you have to leave the United States and pursue something outside. So uh, there are various Fulbright grants. You could be a researcher, you could teach English, you could get your master's degree, you could you know, do a year of um, postdoc research. So I was lucky enough to find a program that had just started in Ireland. There had only been one cohort that was doing humanitarian logistics and emergency management. So I was like, oh, a two for one. <laughs> and if the State Department pays for it, that'd be great. And, and I applied and uh, I was very luckily awarded uh, the grants. So they covered my costs to go there. And just being able to get both that perspective of the humanitarian side of things, like how do how does the world respond to a global crisis, and the emergency management perspective, which is a little bit more narrow, generally nationally focused or even notion, uh, locally focused, was excellent. I got to really understand what it would mean to be a humanitarian uh, logistician, and I didn't necessarily want that at the ripe old age of 27. <laughs> so uh, emergency management was really still great. I could still help communities that were vulnerable. I could still live and work in the city where I'm from. And it it was an exciting, exciting adventure that could just kind of sprung off from there. 
That's amazing. I really love that there are these two, what like on the surface seem like disparate interests, right? Humanitarianism and supply chain logistics. And you found a way to put those together um, in a way that's super applicable right now, like Nicole was saying. So thanks for giving us all that background. That's really, really interesting. And hopefully this will this will speak to someone who's listening that says, I love two of those things or just one yeah. of those things. And that sounds really interesting. Um, but now let's talk a little bit more about what your day-to-day looks like. So first let's talk about, you know, what the, the past few, like a typical day would look like for you at work um, and then how that's changed given the current global pandemic or, or if it's changed at all. So give yeah. us the scoop. So the scoop is, I specifically work in business resilience. So um, as I said, like emergency management is kind of the umbrella and you have a lot of different paths that you can take. You can work for the public sector or you can work for the private sector. And even within those two groups, there's just a lot of options and opportunities. So I chose private and I work for for for-profit companies who are very concerned with making sure that they can continue to deliver goods and services in the event of a disaster or disruption. Um, So it doesn't even have to be something as big as COVID-19, which is what we're all experiencing now. It could be something as small as, you know, a data center being unavailable um, where we run critical workloads for critical customers. So that, that would be a huge disruption, particularly for the company I currently work for or any cloud company. But you know, it could be as insignificant as that all the way up to COVID-19, which is a global pandemic. So working day to day in kind of business resilience, a lot of what you're doing is planning. Like the mitigation is really what we focus on. Um, in emergency management, there's about, you know, that we argue about this, but typically there's, we all kind of come to a consensus in the industry that there are four phases of a disruption or a disaster. The mitigation phase, the response phase, the recovery phase, and the restoration or resumption phase. And so when I work with people at my company, it's really focusing on the mitigation phase. Like, let's identify all the risks to your function and prepare for the eventuality of those functions going goodbye. Um, If you rely on a team, like a team outside of yours, and they provide something to you, how are you going to still get that from them if something happens to that team? Do you rely on a piece of equipment? A lot of, for example, the banking industry relies on tokens, token keys, YubiKeys, uh, whatever they want to call them to be able to access financial information. And so what would you do if you lost that or if it, you know, something happened? And so it's really identifying what do you currently do, what's currently critical to support your function, and then how do you prepare to lose it? So a lot of discussion uh, that makes people uncomfortable because no one likes to think that something's going to happen. You know, no one wants to plan for the inevitable or the once in a lifetime, or uh, we call it black swan events, uh, things that, you know, don't happen very often. And it's hard to convince people of that value. Sometimes uh, we joke in my industry that we're considered insurance. Like people like me are considered insurance. You know, we, we make sure the company complies with various compliance frameworks by having these documents produced. And we also encourage people a little bit to, to push the envelope to start planning for those black swan events. But until they happen, no one really thinks of you. 
So speaking of black swan events happening, at what point did you and or your team start to realize that COVID was going to be a problem? Yeah, great question. So my position currently has a global presence. Uh, the company I work for is, is globally distributed. So I started working on COVID-19 responses as soon as it started affecting China. I Role, uh, I'm a part, like I'm a line of business to Oracle. Oracle's my parent company and the company I work for is like their cloud computing arm um, called Oracle Cloud Infrastructure. And we didn't have necessarily many employees for the cloud side in China. We do not currently have a data center there either. Um, so my response was a little bit more actually was less, um, but I was still required to respond to the global crisis that my team, the corporate team was also managing with all the other LOPs. And so for me, it was mostly listening, taking information, providing expertise on what I thought we could do, and also taking care of the, you know, the employees that we had. We had less than 100 employees in my LOB in China, but in other LOBs, we had thousands. And so um, they rapidly responded to COVID, and it was a lot different than we've seen other countries respond. And we had difficulty, really, because China um, is kind of tricky. China has a lot of uh, different laws and regulations. Their government is different. How they perceive risk is different from a lot of countries that we operate in. And also, there's a level like uncertainty about um, predicting what they're going to do. And so it was just kind of taking things day by day. And eventually, my company closed all of its offices in China uh, because there were government mandates to do so. And also, it just wasn't safe for employees to be in tight you know, uh, positions with each other. So January was kind of what got the ball rolling. And then end of January, we had our first case in Seattle, actually. So That's right. <laughs> we were kind of like, oh. Here we are, my company, my particular LOB has a good chunk of um, people located in Seattle. And so it definitely sprung on my radar a lot earlier because of China, but also because now it was affecting, you know, the city that I live in and the city where a good majority of um, my LOB employees are located. So there were a lot of daily calls. There were a lot of kind of figuring things out. And as I said, like China's different from a lot of countries response. And we, we kind of had to build like runbooks, playbooks, whatever you want to call them, uh, standard operating procedures that were specifically designed for China and our Chinese employees because they just have different expectations. Yeah, I think it's really interesting you're calling out some of the global differences that you're running into, not only with like litigation and policy, like like laws, but but other, I don't know, just the way other countries operate and how you, you've got to kind of wade through that. So there are so many questions I want to ask you, but I know <laughs> that Nicole has some other good ones planned. So I can't help myself. Just one quick one. And then, yeah. and then Nicole, I'll, I'll uh, toss it to you. But um, what's your reaction to the velocity with which this situation took over the whole world? Like, I feel like I just heard about there were some people that were sick in Wuhan, China, and then all of a sudden there's one in Seattle, and all of a sudden it's all over the U.S. and poor Italy. And so, what's your what's your reaction to just how this has taken off? Is it what you would expect based on what you've learned, or is it more of a black swan than what you would think you'd see? Yeah, great question. I think it's difficult to answer because my personal opinion 
based on things that I have read and based on my background is China didn't disclose everything to the world. There were there are lots of reports that say, you know, that their death toll is actually a lot higher than they actually documented, that they had more of um, the community transmission cases than they actually documented. And so it, it's really hard because we didn't get all the information. So in terms of velocity, which is a great word, it it kind of rolled out how I thought it would, but we didn't get and we didn't get enough of a, a lead time to start planning for it as like normal day citizens. You know, government entities, as we've read uh, with our own, had forewarning and discussed things, but normal day citizens didn't because we didn't have the information, because China's information wasn't necessarily accurate. I believe, and so do a lot of other people, that people were sick before they were reported. Like the, mm -hmm. you know, the symptoms kind of mimicked the flu. Like we now know that there are different symptoms, but I think a lot more people were sick in the January timeframe than we knew about. And even the February timeframe. I'm gonna pause us for just one second. I wanna make it really clear that what Ashley is absolutely not saying here is that China is in any way to blame for this pandemic. Virologists across the globe agree that this could have started anywhere and that no one country can be blamed for COVID-19. We'll get into this a little bit more, but the issue we address here has to do with the reliability of the information that we're getting that can help us plan for the next stages. With the anti-Asian sentiment that's going around, we in no way want to continue spreading this misinformation that China is to blame for this. With that, we'll get back to the interview. So the velocity doesn't really surprise me. I think it definitely picked up after that. Um, I think the world is very, should be very grateful that China locked down the country because that definitely helped stop the spread um, and, and reduce travel within Southeast Asia. And obviously, you know, people go everywhere uh, these days with travel being cheap and, and convenience. So I'm grateful that they did that. I would say... It's just not something we planned for. It's not something, there are, there are people that plan for it, for sure. I'm one of them. But in the general sense, you know, we just didn't think like a global pandemic would be what 2020 would bring. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. You know, we, we, we really, we've really done a, a shoddy job at predicting some of this stuff uh, because there's not a lot of funding for mitigation. So like literally all of this stems from mitigation. Like if we fund research and if we fund, uh, you know, investigations into, into different uh, diseases, we may have had a better idea. There were people sound, sounding the alarm way before. Um, there were, you know, places within the CDC that had funding and then they got cut. And that's kind of like the world's perspective. It's not necessarily, you know, specific to the United States. Again, like we're seen as insurance. Emergency management is seen as insurance, and, and public health kind of plays a part in that as well. Yeah, definitely. Man, it's like I have so many questions and so many thoughts, but I'm like, I think about just as we've been talking, I think so much about how much of our emergency preparedness has been in Seattle. It's been about like the big one, the earth. Yeah. A lot of the ways that people have prepared is like if the earthquake happens, if we can't use our infrastructure and our roads because some of the bridges have collapsed or 
like what happens in Seattle when this happens? And it's like, well, kind of feels like we can't use our bridges right now. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. No, but that's it. That's that you bring up a good point is that, you know, we all have different hazards affect us wherever we are located in the world. So, you know, you're not immune to any kind of hazard, whether it be man-made or natural or, or technological, but your risk perception changes based on a lot of different factors. So, um, that was the, the fascinating thing about my master's degree is I really got to dig into risk perception and, you know, that's basically how you interpret risk. How, how is risk going to affect you based on your previous experiences? So it could, you know, there's so many factors that, that produce someone's risk perception to be different. It could be socioeconomic backgrounds. It could be past experience. You know, it could be the color of your skin, really everything affects how you're going to perceive a risk. So I know, you know, Nicole, you live in Washington. I, I think Emily, you do too. Mm-hmm. We are so hyper-focused on the earthquake because we had an earthquake. We have had earthquakes, but quite honestly, what I found uh, when I was doing my dissertation uh, in 2015, which was a case study on kind of Seattle community resilience, was that even like preparedness in Seattle, even though we know the earthquake is going to happen, a significant earthquake will happen. People aren't prepared. People just accept the risk. They, you know, think that that they're going to be fine. So it's hard for people like me because, you know, we're we're, we're screaming into the abyss that people need to get prepared um, for the worst scenarios possible. And it's hard because you don't want to have people so narrowly prepare for only one hazard, like an earthquake. You want to have them prepare for an all hazard event. So what's the worst thing that can happen? But again, going back to what I said, no one thought pandemic, you know, and, and, and we, and some people do, but that's not the sexy stuff. That's not the flashy stuff. That's not the stuff that happens all the time. The earthquakes, the hurricanes, the flooding, those are the things that get, you know, national media attention and global media attention and things that we deal with constantly. And so it's it's a little bit more present in people's mind as well. Yeah. And I think that's a perfect segue to the next question. So like, as you've talked about, this is very present in a lot of people's minds. And there's also this element of like, people didn't plan for this. Um, people didn't plan for an event this big. And I, I remember taking your survey. And at that time, I was one of those people that absolutely failed. And I was working for the city of Seattle at the time. And I remember when you asked all these questions about like things I should know about that are available in the city of Seattle. And I was like, as a city employee, I was like, oh, this is embarrassing that I don't know these things. But that being said, we are now in the middle of this. So what are a few things that you could recommend that people do right now? Like what can they do today to like be prepared for, we don't know what's going to come, but we are hearing now that this is expected to be like a couple, several more weeks, if not months. So what can people do today? Yeah. In terms of preparedness today, you know, it's the the world will keep moving. We've already seen that. Like there have already been natural hazards that have dumped on cities around the world um, in the time that we've been in the pandemic mode and in global shutdown. So I think it's important now, if you have the resources to do so, to plan for the everyday um, hazards. You know, take the mentality of wow, I'm going to learn from this. No one expected a pandemic. And I'm going to apply that to, but I do know 
that an earthquake could happen on the West Coast at any time, and we don't have a really great way of predicting that, or anyway, you know, we're, we're trying to develop early warning signs, but we're still in the process of that. If you are in an area with hurricanes that happen that are going to come in the August to October timeframe, you know, we already see global shortage of, of materials and supplies. So try starting to buy that stuff now would be really smart. Flooding, you know, the middle of the country in the United States um, will start to have flooding issues as well. And, and it's just, it's the simple things of preparing for what you can right now um, that will make a big difference because you're right. We don't know uh, when we're going to resume daily activities again. And even if we do, you, you should still be prepared for the stuff that, that we can. So that's my advice for that. In terms of like on the work resiliency side, you know, if you're lucky enough to have a large team, start thinking about what people, what will happen to people if they get sick. You know, how will your team afford to lose 25% of the workforce? How will your team afford to lose 50%? How will it afford to lose 75%? What if every single person on your team is located in Seattle or on the West Coast? What happens then if we have an earthquake during the pandemic? Can you start moving some of those critical functions or at least cross-training people in different uh, geographic areas so that they can pick up the work if something happens to you or your team? Those are really important discussions to start having if, if people haven't already. You know, people aren't, you know, it's not an infinite resource and you really have to balance the well-being of your employees. Obviously, their health and safety comes first. Um, with what your what your company needs are um, and to do that you have to have really diligent planning and, and um, cross-training in place. That's a really good point and you threw out lots of really good questions for people to consider like what happens if a few people get sick? What happens if everyone gets sick? So going back to something you had mentioned a little earlier about what the, the people should be thinking they should be prepared not just for the emergencies that are more salient like earthquakes on the West Coast, but just for any type of emergency, like like a, a pandemic, what are some of those things that you would recommend people do to prepare? So I think first off the bat is sign up for any local um, emergency alert system you might have. That's like crucial, you know, because yeah, we're, we're all on social media. We're all, you know, getting notified what happens in the world at every minute of the day. But again, there are people like me that are literally doing this for their job. You know, like this is their, it's their responsibility to notify people, whether they work in a, a private company or in the public sector, um, of any kind of impending kind of disruption or if something has happened already. So I would say sign up for local emergency alerts, start at the city level. Uh, for example, city of Seattle has a great alert system. It's called Alert Seattle. <laughs> fairly positive it's called alert Seattle. um that's a great place to start and then if you don't have a city level because it, you know these things cost money like to have an emergency alert system where people opt in and voluntarily give emails and uh cell phone numbers you know it takes it takes money to to manage those types of systems and so it's not all cities have those so then you go to the county level does your county have something and there i would say a good chunk of counties across the united states do and then at state levels, um, some states have 
uh, emergency notification programs as well. So I'd say definitely opt into that. It's similar to what's that? Amber alerts. It's kind of it's similar to Amber alerts. For example, the city of Seattle uh, alert system, you get to opt into what you want alerts for. So you can choose, do I want alerts on traffic disruptions or do I want alerts on melting hell and erupting? Kind of varies, you know, the gamut. So you get to choose, uh, you get to provide your information and you get to renew every year. So if you don't want to continue to get those uh, alerts, you don't have to. Um, but that's like step one is opt into those alerts. Okay. What was that's that a good, that's a good baseline. Yeah. So what are the things people should do soon? Oh yeah. Number one, get signed up for alerts, get informed. Yeah. Okay. What's your number two? I would say before you even go out and buy supplies, have the conversations with your people you live with, your family, um, anyone who you support about what those scenarios would look like. So in my world, those are called tabletop exercises. Uh, it's like a discussion-based scenario where you essentially talk about a threat to you or your function or your team and discuss what the outcomes of that threat would be. Like, how would you manage that? Um, and so I think on the family level, on the personal preparedness side, you can still have those conversations and say, okay, what would we do if we had an earthquake? What would we do if we had a hurricane? What would we do if, you know, mom got sick and no one could visit her in the hospital? Um, and then you kind of start to, to already map out what you need to do on the back ends from all like that discussion. You learn, oh, well, you know, mom should have uh, an advanced directive or an NDA or an NDA, <laughs> DNR. She should have a DNR. With um, an NDA attached. <laughs> and oh, like, you know, we, uh, our pets, like, doesn't have, like, how none of the records are digitized. So now we have to go digitize like, our pet records and make sure that we have those accessible because if there's a fire in our house, which only affects our house, we won't have those. And then how would we prove that our pet is licensed and, you know, up to date with their vaccinations? So all that stuff. So having that discussion about different things that could affect your family um, or where you live or, or who you support um, is great. And, and on the business side as well, having those discussions about okay, well, what if a data center went down? Or what if we couldn't produce coffee anymore in a particular coffee plant? What would we do? And then taking those what would we do's um, and lessons learned and really turning them into the after action items. Okay, that's good. So I, I noticed your top, neither of your top two things include buying toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> It's really important. Yeah. No, those are great, though. And those are things that people who are listening to this right now can do while they're on their phone um, or, or bug others to do. So those are really great. Do you have a number three? I would say get supplies that make sense. You know, you're joking about toilet paper. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't understand necessarily the phenomenon over toilet paper yeah. during COVID-19. But I will say that since we're all home, or the majority of us are home, you know, it does make sense to have more toilet paper because you're not using the restrooms at work or, or wherever you might be in public. Just doesn't think, I don't think a six-month supply is necessarily what you need, but to each their own. Maybe they, maybe that's how often they go to the bathroom. I don't know. No, I mean, um, your individual sock bag will do the job in an emergency. Like, yeah. we all have one. <laughs> exactly but i think you know, supplies are important um to an extent even more important though to supplies and this is something i found out during my dissertation uh regarding community resilience 
is social networking and not in the sense of like being online social networking, but social networking with your community. So community relationships will actually predict more about how you, how resilient you will be after a disaster than the amount of supplies you have. Um, so are you involved in a church? Do you know your neighbors? Do you have some kind of local you know, group like the Girl Scouts or the Boy Scouts or whatever, where, you know, parents are getting together and talking. It's that, that like social network that will really determine if you're resilient or not, because those are the people that you can rely on to provide what we call mutual aid. So someone needs a chainsaw because a tree crashed on their roof and another person needs, you know, some pliers because something got tangled during, you know, a disaster. And so do you have the chainsaw that can help this person? Do you have the pliers that can help that person? It's all about what you can mutually exchange to, to, to respond and recover from, from the disaster. So social networks are so critical. So if you don't have that, you know, it's difficult right now because of COVID in terms of getting to know your neighbors. Um, but something, you know, you could think about doing is leaving a note on someone's door and saying, hey, this is my phone number. Here's my email address. I would love to start like a community block like email group or WhatsApp chat or um, whatever it may be, um, just to, to have that uh, built-in capability as well. Thank you. That's a really good list. So that's four. So you've got a top four. Is that your, your final answer? <laughs> We're it. stopping at four. <laughs> that is awesome. That makes me feel really good about the guerrilla gardening I did so that I could start a charity garden. Makes me feel really good. That's like, yeah. Yeah, I have heard people started gardening more throughout this. Yeah. And baking bread. Baking bread, apparently, there's no yeast in like anywhere in the United States. Nowhere. We have a bread maker that we were like, we could use this finally. <laughs> nope. What is it about bread? I think well, it's the like comfort of baking. It's also one of those things where if there's nothing else there, you could add flour, water, and yeast mm. together and get something you can eat. Yeah. I'm, I just have not done the stress baking yet. I actually don't have any time to do anything in my life right now. So <laughs> stress baking just doesn't seem really relevant. Thank, thank goodness the grocery stores are still open and we can still get food. Yeah, absolutely. So the final question, and we ask this to almost anybody, but is there anything that you wish that we had asked you? Oh, great question. No, I think there are just like a few things that, you know, it's, it's the emergency management industry is so wide. And like, you know, I told my story of wanting to combine my humanitarian side and my logistics side, and I found something that works, but it's really anyone, you know, like any emergency management team in the public sector space needs someone like an HR person needs someone to represent vulnerable populations and communities, you know, needs someone um, who can translate things or interpret. Like, it's just like the skill set is so far and wide of what is needed in my industry. Um, and then you go to the private sector and it's more of like business continuity, risk management, disaster recovery. And, and like private sector hasn't really evolved past that. I think there's there's movement towards that and they're trying to they're trying to say well actually someone who's worked at the Red Cross as a volunteer you know can provide really great insight or someone who worked in supply chain management would provide really good insight because there's just like the inherent risk process in a lot of jobs 
supply chain management, for example, is like you're always thinking about what can happen. You're always thinking about lead time. You're thinking about second suppliers. You're thinking about single source suppliers. You're thinking about quality control. You're thinking about the delivery trucks or, or whatever. You're thinking about contingency workers. And, and that's that's only one you know industry. That's only one field. And so there is a lot of opportunity in emergency management. And it comes in waves. You know, like I said earlier about the insurance. Right now, there's going to be a lot of jobs in emergency management, like so many, because we're not done with the response. Like I talked about the four phases. We're still in the response phase. We haven't even hit the recovery phase or the resumption and restoration phase. So there are going to be a lot of like open opportunities right now. You know, they may be limited contracts, but it's such a good way to get like your foot in the door. Um, really unfortunate is that when people see us only as insurance, we don't get the headcount and funding, both in private and public sector. And so then you're really left with monopolizing and capitalizing on these uh, events to get the experience that you need to, to go further in your career. That's really cool. So it sounds like what you're saying is there's an ample amount of opportunity. And so maybe if you're someone sitting here thinking, you know, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a nurse, I I can't contribute. And these several ways, there is a way with for many skill sets to get involved to help with this type of thing now and in the future. Totally. And I think one thing I know you guys cover in other podcasts about data, and like how to use data. Um, it's like a point in my industry that is so sorely underused. We have so much data. There's a really like treasure troves of information that people like me collect and there's nowhere it goes, you know, either because of lack of funding or, or no one knows how to be a data scientist. No one knows how to analyze things and tell a story. There's lack of tooling, you know, thank God Tableau exists, but not every company will let you procure that. Um, and then on the public side, you have to go through the process of, you know, going through a 503C with Tableau to get some licensing. And if you're not a 503C, what do you do? Um, and Tableau is just obviously one biz, you know, biz tool. Um, but like data scientists are absolutely needed in emergency management. And especially now, um, we are not great about tooting our own horns and we're not great about telling stories because we haven't had those skills in our back pockets. Um, so especially if you're a data scientist or someone interested in data or knows how to manipulate and analyze it and tell a story behind it, I mean, we need you. That's really big. So everyone heard it here first. <laughs> Ashley Young has said the new frontier for data science is emergency management. I love it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I was like, I'm going to have one more little aside before we wrap this up. But when I was working at Boeing, I did work with our supply chain emergency preparedness person. And it was before I'd gotten into like larger data analytics. It was really early on when I worked there and he had so much information. He didn't know what to do with it. They tracked every major event within a 20 mile radius of any like plant or Boeing, yeah. like globally around the world. That's so many locations. And so just for our supply chain, which was like the small part of research and development, he would get like 500 notifications every morning that he would have to like figure out, do I actually need to notify somebody about this? Is it going to disrupt our supply chain? Which projects do I have to inform? And it was, he was one person. Yeah. Um, 
And that was and it. And a lot of that's still managed through like Excel spreadsheets and Word docs. Yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like we just haven't been able, the industry hasn't been able to evangelize data science and in a way that that helps us and gets compelling you know, stories out so that we can get better funding so that we can have more people working on it. And it's, again, it goes back to like, unless a disaster is present, no one really looks at you. Like BI is not important, you know, in the space when everything's running fine. Well, it's the the worst of circumstances for this to happen, but I hope at least one silver lining from this whole COVID situation is that now Disasters are, are more salient in a productive way. Like we should be prepared. Pandemics can happen. Here's an example. Um, so that's, you know, not a, not a great takeaway, but hopefully something that helps move your field um, in a, the right direction or a, yeah. not the right direction, but a more visible uh, type of platform. Yeah. And I think the other thing, like, you know, not just applicable to emergency management, but companies and, and even the public sector in general is like, are there better ways to do things? Are there better ways to live our lives? Are there better ways to run our companies? And um, are there better ways to support employees remotely? And um, I think that, you know, it's discussions that I'm having with my team and uh, at Oracle is really like, are we going to go back to the office? Like, does that make sense? You know, what, what does that mean? Did we actually learn that staying at home and working from home is, just as productive, if not more, you know, and and that's just my company. I know a lot of other companies are thinking about that too. Like what has this pandemic forced us to come into like realization with, like, what are we, how are we going to reflect on this and and make ourselves better? I look forward to the next stages of the, of the curve where we have to figure that part out. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, me too. Cool. Well, thank you so, so, so much. Thank you again to our guest, Ashley Young. And thank you to our producers of this episode, Lee Callahan and Sarah Cannon, as well as our project manager, Fee Nguyen. Thanks to the rest of our team, Alicia Karicha, Sam Cannon, and Josh Weaver. We couldn't have gotten here without you. A very special thank you to the super talented, Nicole Tiravillumala, who put together our awesome theme song. Until next time. <laughs>